Doubtless you've heard the phrase, point of no return. Uh, According to Merriam-Webster, the phrase came into use around 1941. uh, And it it was first used to refer to the point in the flight of an aircraft beyond which the remaining fuel will be insufficient for a return to the starting point uh, with the result the craft must proceed. Um, in, in aviation, uh, PNR is a technical acronym for the point of no return. Uh, there is even a formula for determining uh, the point of no return, the PNR. I won't bore you or um, maybe scare you with the formula itself, but suffice it to say that uh, once an aircraft reaches the PNR, beyond it, the, the aircraft must proceed to some other destination. A plane might turn course at some point during its journey, but once a certain amount of fuel is spent, it can no longer return to its starting point. We'll see something like this in our text this morning. Manasseh, king of Judah, moves the people of Judah in a direction so utterly wrong, and he does it for so terribly long, that by the time he changes course, it's too little too late. If you haven't done so already, please turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 21. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 200, uh, sorry, 328. 328. As we turn our attention to 2 Kings 21, we must remember that the book of Kings, it chronicles a descent from the golden age of Israel under the reign of Solomon to Israel's division and descent into the grueling age of the exile. In our study of 1 and 2 Kings, we've seen the kingdom's division into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And by the time we reach chapter 21 of 2 Kings, which is where we are today, the northern kingdom of Israel has been carried off to exile by Assyria. Judah alone, the southern kingdom, is left. And from this point forward in the book of Kings, we're watching Judah's history unfold. Really, we're watching, sadly, their decline. Last week, we considered the reign of Hezekiah the king of Judah. On the whole, Hezekiah was given one of the most positive evaluations in the entire book of Kings. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. This morning, we turn to consider the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon. We see a reversal of righteousness. Hezekiah's son and his grandson are wicked men. They undo what Hezekiah had done for the glory of God. Manasseh is perhaps the worst king in the history of the kings of Judah. The author of the book of Kings tells us that as a result, particularly of Manasseh's sin, Judah will eventually fall. Sometimes, Christianity is mistakenly summarized as a list of do's and don'ts. Do read your Bible, do go to church, do be a part of a small group, do pray, and so on. Don't. Don't get drunk, don't fornicate, don't be selfish, don't be greedy, and so on. Yes, sometimes Christianity is mistakenly summarized as a list of do's and don'ts. Christianity is fundamentally about a living relationship with the living God through the living Savior. That is what Christianity is fundamentally about. And that living relationship with the living God through the living Savior will lead us to do some things and not others, such as the list that I gave just a moment ago. In other words, while Christianity is sometimes mistakenly summarized as a list of do's and don'ts, it does not mean that Christianity is devoid of do's and don'ts. In fact, the passage before us today has three three don'ts. First, 
don't return to unrighteousness. If you've been redeemed, don't return to your former sins. Second, don't disregard the Lord's warning. In love, the Lord God warns His people about the consequences of sin. So don't disregard His warning. And third, don't continue down the path of condemnation. If you know the road that leads to destruction, don't keep going down that road. Those three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Don't return to unrighteousness. Don't disregard the Lord's warning. And don't continue down the path of condemnation. But just one more word is needed before we continue on. You may think that those don'ts are weighty. And they are. And you may think that they are liable to make us disheartened. But what we must understand is that God's warning to us, His warnings to us in Scripture, come from a heart of love that want to welcome us into His kingdom. He warns us in part because He wants to spare us the heartache and the disaster that necessarily follow on the heels of disobedience. And as we consider this solemn word of warning together, remember that God warns us in order to keep us walking in His way so that we might be welcomed into His kingdom. God warns us in order to keep us walking in His way so that we might be welcomed into His kingdom. God's warnings are one of His precious means of grace to His people. They're the guardrails on the sides of a dangerous road. With this in view, let's turn then to the first lesson that we learned from 2 Kings 21. Don't return to unrighteousness. This is what we learn in 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 to 9, where we see Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, reverse his father's advances and return to his grandfather's unrighteousness. Read 2 Kings chapter 21, beginning there in verse 1, verses 1 to 9. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord Yahweh. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as King Ahab of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord Yahweh, which the Lord Yahweh had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord Yahweh, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord Yahweh had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord Yahweh destroyed before the people of Israel." 
don't return to unrighteousness. We see that very clearly here. Verse 1, it opens with this common regnal royal formula that we find so often in the book of Kings. And given that the the northern king of Israel is now out of the picture, right, having been carried away by the people of Assyria to exile, we're not told anything about the opposite kingdom in this regnal formula. Manasseh, he begins his rule surprisingly early at 12 years old. And what we need to know about this is Manasseh reigns with his father Hezekiah for a period of time before taking responsibility for the kingdom all on his own. And when when two kings kind of reign together, kind of hand in hand, this is often called a co-regency. So in total, Manasseh we see here, he reigned for 55 years. It's one of the longest, uh, I think it is the longest reign of any uh, king in the two kingdoms. It's, It's the longest reign by a country mile. His long reign was disastrous for the nation. And did you notice there the evaluation of Manasseh provided in verse 2? Stick your nose in the text. Do you see it there? There we're told that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord Yahweh. According to, and just notice how the author characterized to the despicable practices of the nations. Whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He did evil. It's the same kind of evil that the Canaanite nations committed. Whom the Lord drove out of the land. And the author, he's putting us on notice. He's not so subtly telling us that if the Lord drove out those nations for their evil, then, well, he's certainly going to drive out Judah for their evil. After all, he's already done it with Israel. And what does Manasseh do but copy the evil of the northern king Ahab there in verse 3? Manasseh, he kills two birds with one stone. He reverses Hezekiah's worship reforms and he returns the nation back to the syncretistic practices of Ahab. Ahab, you'll recall, was the wicked king of the northern kingdom who married the the Baal-loving Jezebel. Manasseh rebuilds what was rightly and righteously destroyed. He erects altars for Baal and made an Asherah and to this he adds the worship of the hosts of heaven. Do you see what Manasseh is doing? He is bringing in all possible forms of worship. He is returning the land to a Yahweh plus worship policy. Yahweh plus Baal. Yahweh plus the stars. Yahweh plus anything and everything. And to make matters worse, he shows it really is a Yahweh plus policy by bringing foreign gods into the temple itself. Verse 5. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And then verse 7. And the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house of the Lord. Do you wonder why? You wonder why Manasseh's deeds were called despicable in verse 2? What were the first two commandments? One, thou shalt have no other gods but me. Two, before no idol bow thy knee. Right here is Manasseh bringing foreign and false gods into the temple, the very place where Yahweh promised to put his name, where he promised to make his presence known to his people. He is there, and yet they're putting gods right before him. This is shameful. It's a return to unrighteousness and wickedness, but that's not all. Did you shudder when we read verse 6? He burned, he burned his son as an offering. He, he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. 
Now it's just piling up the wickedness of this king. He didn't just do some evil. He, the author tells us at the end of verse 6, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord. Now listen to how Old Testament scholar Paul House, his observation about this. He writes, it's clear that Manasseh follows all the wrong role models. He imitates the detestable Canaanites, Jeroboam I, the builder of high places, Ahab, the advocate of Baal worship, Ahaz, the proponent of child sacrifice, and Saul, the visitor of mediums. It's hard to imagine a more damning critique. Manasseh, he returns to all forms of unrighteousness. A complete reversal of Hezekiah's reign. Verses 2 to 7 are actually a deliberate reversal of the description of Hezekiah's reign in the chapter before, or in, in chapter 18, sorry, verses 3 to 8. Just as verse 2 reminded us that God removed the Canaanites out of the land for their evil, so verses 7 and 8 remind us of another past promise of God. Yahweh promised that he would firmly plant his people in the promised land if they were careful to do according to all that he, God, commanded them and according to all that the law of Moses commanded them. God's people would remain in God's place so long as they lived under God's rule. But, verse 9, but they did not listen. Do you see how the people of Judah scorned God's kindness and generosity? How could God's people not listen? They didn't want to listen. They wanted to live their own way. They, they loved their idols. They loved the gods of the Canaanites. They loved this paganism more than their progeny. What is more precious to a parent than a child? Do you see how much they loved this false worship? They put their children to death. Why? That false and foreign worship, it appealed to their flesh and their desire for control. The Baal and the Asherah appealed to their desire for sexual immorality. The Baal and the Asherah were fertility gods. And they wanted control. They worshipped, they practiced sexual immorality because that was how you got Baal and Asherah to bless and multiply your flocks and your fields. Why worship the stars, astrology, and omens and such? So you can see and know and control the future. What's your sign? Why do you want to know what your horoscope is for the day? Could it be the illusion of wanting to have some knowledge of the future. Humans have always wanted a God that they could control. A God who would serve them instead of serving Him, the one true God who made them. Manasseh led Judah astray. In fact, according to verse 9, he led them to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The people of Judah had not merely returned the land of Canaan, to the type of place it was before the Lord through Joshua conquered the land, they surpassed the wickedness the Lord removed from the land. They took it beyond its original wicked state. One of the stated reasons for removing the Canaanites from the land was due to their wickedness. So, so here's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. 
There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord God. And because of these abominations, the Lord is driving them, the people of Canaan, out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Manasseh returned Judah to unrighteousness, and he took them beyond the nations who first inhabited the land too. One can only expect that the same will happen to Judah. In fact, that is the pronouncement that we're about to hear in the next stretch of verses. But before we move on, we need to think about what this means for us. Manasseh returned Judah to unrighteousness. But the people of Judah ought not be let off the hook so easily. Manasseh led them astray. But he only enticed Judah, the people of Judah, with what was already in their hearts. Why didn't anyone in Judah object to this return to unrighteousness? Why didn't anyone object to the altars and idols being introduced at the temple? While it's true that we're given the language of he throughout verses 1 to 8, do you remember who the Lord holds accountable? Who the Lord says didn't listen in verse 9? He says they did not listen. Meaning Manasseh and Judah were both responsible for this return to unrighteousness. Do you know why we return to unrighteousness? Sadly, we return to unrighteousness because the seeds of such sin are latent within our own hearts. They're there. One, one Puritan minister said that Satan, like a fisher, baits his hook according to the appetite of the fish. The seeds of sin are latent within our hearts, and that is part of the reason why we ought to keep the greatest distance from sin in playing with the bait. So said Thomas Brooks in his wonderful volume, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Brooks goes on to remind believers that sin will usher us into the greatest and saddest losses. It is very deceitful. It cost the lifeblood of the Lord Jesus. Don't return to unrighteousness. Because the Lord Jesus, by His blood, has set you free from the power and punishment of sin. In the words of Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Having been rescued by the Lord Jesus for righteousness, how might we, how might we refuse to return to unrighteousness? When tempted... When tempted, do not linger. Instead, immediately leave. When tempted, don't linger. Leave. Leave the thought, leave the place, leave the danger. Leave and cleave to Christ. Confess your weakness to Him. Confess your need for His help in that very moment. Confess that He and He alone can satisfy your soul. Cleave or cling to the one who actually loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Satan does not love you. The temptations of your flesh, they do not love you. But the Lord Jesus, he loves you. Run to him. 
Remember that sin has done nothing but bring us to our knees and into the grave. But our Christ has lifted us up from death to life. When you're tempted by sin, tempted to return to unrighteousness, remember its cruel and cold chains. And when you're tempted by sin, tempted to return to unrighteousness, remember the warmth and love of our wonderful, merciful Savior. Don't return to unrighteousness. And don't disregard the Lord's warning. That's what we hear in 2 Kings 21, verses 10 to 18. Don't disregard the Lord's warning. Let's begin by reading just verses 10 to 15. Beginning there in verse 10. And the Lord Yahweh said by His servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. In these verses, we receive the Lord's declaration concerning Manasseh and Judah's return to unrighteousness. It's, it's nothing less than a warning concerning the coming disaster. We're told in verse 10, verse 10, that the Lord spoke by His prophets. We're not given the name of any specific prophet, but consider the Lord's patience in the plural. Right? The Lord said by His servants, the prophets, multiple messengers delivered multiple messages, and they were disregarded. The prophets down through Israel and Judah's history warned that judgment was coming. Moses was the first in that long line of prophets who warned God's people. The purpose of their warnings was to dissuade the people from continuing in their disobedience and sin. They were essentially shouting, Stop the train. Stop the train. The bridge ahead is out. Stop the train or you're going to fall. The prophets called the people of God to repent and to return to righteousness. They would not. They would not listen. They would not hear and heed the word of God delivered by His messengers. Has the Lord pursued you? Has He pursued you? with messengers and messages? Has the Word of God been delivered to you? Have you disregarded it? Or have you devoted yourself to delighting in it? Verses 11 and 15, they, they give us the rationale. We get the, the justification for the Lord's judgment before and after the actual announcement of the Lord's judgment. Manasseh, has committed the abominations listed in verses 2 to 7. 
He has done things more evil than the Amorites did. Again, the, the, the Amorites were those who were living in the land before Israel's entrance and for their evil. The Amorites, they're, they're worthy of expulsion. Manasseh made Judah to sin with his idols. Verse 11. Isn't that an interesting turn of phrase? Manasseh made Israel or Judah to sin with his idols. He was so linked to these forms of false worship that they're called his idols. And they became Judah's idols as well. And you, you become like, you become linked with what you love. Therefore, verse 12, or because of Manasseh and Judah's sin, the Lord promised to bring a frightful judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The claim that this disaster will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle is essentially the claim that everyone who hears of it will be afraid. Their, their knees will knock. They will shake in their boots. They will quake with fear. The Lord will use the same righteous standard of judgment that He used when He judged Samaria. Samaria, as you may recall, was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. The Lord God will judge Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah, and thus the whole nation with the same righteous standard that He judged Samaria with. That's what these images of a measuring line and a, a, a plumb line communicate. Judah, when stretched out, will not measure up to God's righteous standard. It will fall short. The, the image of a, a plumb line is slightly different, but it also actually turns up in the ministry of the prophet Amos. A plumb line or a plumb bob, as they're often called today, is simply a string with a weight on the end of it. Uh, if you attach a string to a fixed point above, you can determine whether or not your, your wall is plumb or square or straight. In other words, if you attach that string to a point, say, an inch away from the top of the wall, then if the distance of the weight is at the, at the bottom is an inch away, then you, you've got a square wall, a, a plumb wall. If, however, the distance at the bottom varies from the distance at the top, then you know your, your wall's not plumb or square. Or to put it crassly, your wall's crooked and needs to be uh, racked back to square. But what does this have to do with Judah? Judah is the wall that the Lord is setting his plumb line against. And the question is, is this, is Judah straight or crooked? And given what we've been told in the first nine verses of the chapter, we know that without a doubt Manasseh and Judah, they're, they're crooked. In this declaration, the Lord is effectively asking, do you see what I see? Do you see that Judah is crooked? She's a, a wall that can't be racked back to square but instead needs to be torn down. And the Lord God then mixes metaphors. He's allowed to do that. He's God. He can mix his metaphors if he wants to. He moves from construction to cleaning. He speaks of wiping a dish in the latter half there of verse 13. He will wipe it totally clean, turn it upside down, kind of shake it off, let things fall off, and wipe it off so that nothing on the dish remains. None of the scraps of food sticking to the plate will be left. The Lord God will clean out Jerusalem and Judah. The Lord has been piling up images and metaphors to vividly explain what He makes plain there in verse 14. Yahweh will remove His protection from His people and allow them to be defeated by their enemies. Which means what? All this time, He has been graciously restraining their enemies. They have provoked Him long enough with their sin. Did you see how personal sin is against the living God? 
It's against me, the Lord says. Verse 15, because they have done what is evil in my sight and provoked me to anger. Our sin is a personal offense against the one true God. And they have provoked God long enough with their sin. He has lovingly protected them all while they have spurned and forgotten Him. Did you know that that is what Manasseh's name means? It means forgetfulness. Manasseh and the people of Judah forgot the Lord. They forgot their redemption and rescue from slavery in Egypt. They forgot the atonement for their sins through the sacrificial system. They forgot the gift of God's loving law. They forgot the precious mediation of God's presence through the priesthood. They forgot the Lord's gracious preservation of them in the wilderness and feeding them from heaven. They forgot the Lord's conquest of the promised land. They forgot the Lord's kindness in giving them a king and prosperity and protection. Manasseh and Judah deserve this judgment because they have forgotten God's grace. They positively spurned God's grace. It would be one thing if they were indifferent But the sad fact is they have cast it aside and have deliberately provoked the Lord. Have we we ever forgotten just how kind God has been to us? Have we ever forgotten the sacrifice and atonement of Jesus? Our rescue from slavery to sin. Have we ever forgotten the loving gift of the Holy Spirit who writes God's law upon our hearts? Have we ever forgotten that Christ ever lives to intercede for us as our great high priest? Have we ever forgotten how God's generous and gracious preservation of our lives in the wilderness of this world? Have we ever forgotten that God has given us daily bread? Have we ever forgotten that the Lord Jesus has secured for us the promised land of heaven? God has not forgotten to be kind to us. He has remembered His mercy and steadfast love. Psalm 25, 6. He has delivered us and atoned for our sins. Psalm 79, 9. God, He has forgotten something though. Because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the inauguration of the new covenant in Christ, God has forgotten something. Do you know what God has forgotten? He's forgotten it in the sense, not that it's passed out of his mind, but in the sense that he no longer holds it against us. God has forgotten our sin. So, so the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Christian, do not forget your God. He has forgotten your sin. He no longer holds them against us. The time for Judah's judgment has come. What should the people of Judah do in light of this death sentence? They should not neglect or disregard this warning. Instead, they should cry out to God for mercy, just like Hezekiah did. When he was given his death sentence. Do you remember that from the previous chapter? The Lord told Hezekiah to set his house in order. He's going to die. And Hezekiah prayed. And he pled with the Lord. Just to be sure that we as readers are totally and completely aware. That this judgment is fully justified. 
we receive verse 16. Read 2 Kings 21, 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord Yahweh. That, that moreover, it functions like a, oh, and by the way, Manasseh did this too. Besides all the sin that he led Judah into and that they were willingly led into, Manasseh also shed innocent blood. He shed a lot of it. So much of it is as if Jerusalem were entirely filled with blood from one end to the other. He was a bloodthirsty monster. The Lord's judgment is fully justified. And verses 17 and 18 conclude the summary of Manasseh's reign. Read verses 17 and 18 now. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Manasseh died. He enjoyed life and a long reign. He left behind a lasting legacy of blood and judgment. Now, many of you are perhaps puzzling over a glaring omission by the writer of Kings. The, the author of Kings mentions the book of Chronicles, but he doesn't mention a significant event recorded in the book of Chronicles. It seems so significant that it's, it's almost strange that he didn't mention it. Um, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we learn that Manasseh was captured by the king of Assyria, that he was bound in chains and hooks and dragged to prison in Babylon. There Manasseh cried out to Yahweh. He entreated the favor of the Lord and he humbled himself before God. He, he prayed to God and God was moved by his entreaty and he heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. As it turns out, Manasseh, this most wicked of Judah's kings, actually he restored the altar of the Lord and offered sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah, he commanded the nation to serve the Lord. In other words, Manasseh repented and reformed his ways. But sadly, Judah didn't listen. The author of Kings, he leaves out all of this seemingly vital information. And he expects us to understand why he does that as readers. Why do you think the author of Kings left this information out? It's not because he didn't know about it. After all, in verse 17, the author himself, he tells us, look, go, go look, go read in the book of Chronicles if you want to keep uh, understanding more about Manasseh's reign. Well, the author of Kings knows that Manasseh prayed. He, he knows that he was restored to the throne and made some reforms. But why doesn't the author of Kings tell all of us, tell us this? Well, in brief, because he has a different purpose than the author of Chronicles. The author of Kings is focused on why the people of God ended up in exile. And the Lord has declared that it is because of Manasseh and Judah's sin. In fact, another reason that the author doesn't men mention Manasseh's return to the throne is to communicate that you can cross the point of no return. Your sin and your utter disregard of God's word and warnings can initiate consequences that cannot be stopped. 
And we all know this to be true. Whether you are young or old, we were all probably warned by our parents at some point that if we, if we push the bounds just one more time, you're going to face the consequences. And if you were uh, anything like I was like as a, as a kid, you, you push the bounds one more time. And your father, my father said, son, when we get to home, we're going to have a conversation and you're going to be punished. Not all my tears and sighs and prayers could avert that awful load, could avert the consequences of my disobedience. We can repent of our sin, express our sorrow for our sin, and sometimes in this life, the consequences remain. Manasseh and Judah have crossed a line. They've crossed the point of no return. They have disregarded the Lord's warnings long enough, and they will face the judgment of exile. So here is a lesson for us. Don't disregard the Lord's warnings. Don't put him to the test. Don't forget him. Don't forget his grace. These things in 2 Kings took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This passage warns us. Here's how one Old Testament scholar put it. He writes, This is a solemn matter. That iniquity can pass a point that places a nation or an individual beyond hope of recovery and makes judgment irreversible. The fact that we do not know where that point is should sober us. The fact that we don't know where that point is should sober us. That's how it is with idolatry and depravity. There is a line we can cross and we don't know where it is. And this ought to scare us into repenting. A broken and crushed heart doesn't look all that bad when one considers the alternative. Let us allow God's warnings to lead us to repentance and the Redeemer. Don't return to unrighteousness. Don't disregard the Lord's warnings. Third, don't continue down the path of condemnation. Don't continue down the path of condemnation. This is what we're warned against in 2 Kings 21, verses 19 to 26 with Ammon's reign. Follow along as we read 2 Kings 21, verses 19 to 26. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Jotba. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord Yahweh. As Manasseh, his father, had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord Yahweh, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord Yahweh. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. And Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. Ammon... He receives a uh, relatively short account. We receive his regnal formula there in verse 19, his evaluation in verse 20, the highlights of his reign in verses 21 to 24, and the conclusion 
of his reign in verses 25 and 26. Ammon's reign was mercifully short. It only lasted for two years. Sadly, though, he was counted as evil and continued the evil practices of his father, Manasseh. Like father, like son. Three times in verse 20 and 21. Three times in two verses, we're told that Manasseh was just like his pop. He did evil as Manasseh's father had done. He walked in all the ways which his father walked and served the idols that his father served. The apple did not fall too far from the tree. And this ought to be a lesson to fathers, to, to all parents, and to those who exercise authority in other spheres in this world. Those who follow on your heels will often continue in the pattern that you set. They will walk in the ways you walk. They will often parent in the ways that you parent. They will lead in the ways that you lead. Govern in the ways that you govern. Sin in the ways you sin. But Manasseh doesn't bear all the blame for the wickedness of his son Ammon. In verse 22, the author also lays blame squarely at the feet of Ammon. Do you see there verse 22? He abandoned the Lord. He did not walk in the way of the Lord Yahweh. Yes, the the history that precedes us can and does have a profound effect upon us. It shapes us in our historical and cultural moment. It makes us blind to some things. It opens our eyes to others. Nevertheless, we are personally and individually responsible before the the Lord for the ways in which we walk. Though we may be following the pattern, path, and parenting of those who were before us, we are still personally and individually responsible for our own sins. Ammon was himself responsible for continuing down the path of Manasseh, for continuing down the path of condemnation. Ammon was struck down and killed at the age of 24. He was killed by his servants in his own house. And interestingly enough, the people of Judah, the people of the land, rose up and struck down and killed those servants. There's all kinds of turmoil in the kingdom. Not only that, but they made King Ammon's son Josiah king in his place. What is going on here? Judah, it seems like a chaotic mess. Moreover, one would think that the people of Judah would want to get off the Davidic dynasty train. Right? Manasseh was a total disaster. He returned the land to unrighteousness and opened Judah up to the threat of exile. Ammon was just like Manasseh. Why continue riding the Davidic dynasty train and anoint Ammon's son, Josiah? Isn't this simply continuing down the path of condemnation? Nope. By placing another son of David on the throne, it's clear that there were still some in Judah who believed the promises of God despite the darkness and the wickedness of those former kings. They believed that God was faithful to his promises. They knew that Yahweh hadn't changed. He wasn't the one who moved. They were. They moved away from him. But now they have decided to cling to him and his promises. Remember, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised that he would raise up a son of David who would be the messianic king. He would reign on the throne of his father David forever. In this dark text of Manasseh and Ammon, there is still some light. 
on the throne of Jerusalem still sits a son of David. They didn't know which son would be the messianic king, but they knew they had to ride out the bad ones until the perfect one came. Every son of David kept dying, and some of them died in great darkness. But one day, one son of David would die, not because of his sin, but because he took the sins of God's people upon himself. He would die as a substitute and sacrifice for sin. But as David himself said in Psalm 16:10, God would not let his holy one see corruption. That final and perfect messianic king has come. The Lord Jesus, the final son of David has come. He has lived the life that we have not lived. He never worshiped idols. He never worshiped the idols that Manasseh or Ammon or the idols that we have worshiped. Jesus never sinned. He was perfectly obedient to God with his whole heart and life. And he died upon the cross, taking upon himself the sins of all of those who'd ever turned their sins and placed their faith in him. And three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that he has the power, the right, and the privilege to redeem sinful men and women like you and me. And now Jesus invites us. He invites us to enter the kingdom of God by faith. We enter that kingdom by faith in the King. Trusting, trusting in Jesus that He lived for us and died for us and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. So friend, turn from your unrighteousness and don't go back. Hear God's warning of judgment against sin. See God's judgment against sin in Jesus' death. Don't continue down the path of condemnation. Trust that Jesus received your condemnation for your sin and receive the welcome of Jesus into God's kingdom of everlasting life. We began our our time this morning by considering the point of no return. Our text paints a, a sober picture of the consequences of sin. Manasseh has led the people astray for too long. His sin and disregard of God's word and warnings had taken root in Judah's heart, and the consequences were dire. We need to hear a word of warning and a word of hope from this text. Friends, our sins have consequences. And the truth is, is there is no formula for determining the point of no return for our lives. The Lord Jesus might require of us our lives this very night. Today is the day of salvation. You are not promised tomorrow. So turn to Christ and be redeemed. Don't return to unrighteousness. Don't disregard the Lord's warnings. Don't continue down the path of condemnation. Those small and large steps that we take away from the Lord add up. We get into patterns of sin that are hard to depart from. And sadly, too often, we lead others into sin with us. Trusting in our own strength, we will not have enough fuel to recover and return. There is not enough fuel in us. Still there is hope. Because Christ came and defeated sin and death. He can rescue us from that disastrous course. His mercy is sufficient to cover our transgressions. His grace is sufficient to carry us away from the most stubborn sins. What steps do you need to take or do you need to stop taking away from the Lord 
today. What besetting sins do you need Jesus to rescue you from? In the words of Isaiah, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. You are not past the point of no return today. Choose today to stop trusting in yourself. Rest in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And walk toward the one who loves you with all of his heart. Let's pray together.